The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Exodus 34, 6 has been the meditation of my heart all week long. It's taken up a portion of my time in working through the passage before us this morning. And I can't wait to share some of the grace of God with you from this text this morning. As a man deeply acquainted with the shame of my own sin, this truth about who God is, is the best news. The Bible says that God must be provoked to anger, but he never has to be provoked to mercy. It's just who he is. It just flows out of him, merciful and gracious, full of love. This is who our God is. Isn't that wonderful? Well, I hope by God's grace we're going to see some of that love and that mercy and that grace in the passage before us this morning. Before we get there, I would like to pray with you. If you're new, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. I love being the pastor of this church. One of the things I love most about pastoring this church is that I get to pray for you by name. And today I'll be praying for you from Psalm 119, verse 137 to 144. I'll put it on the screen so you can follow along with me. And after we pray through the psalm, I would like to say a prayer or two for our leaders who are leading us now out by God's grace of this stay-at-home order. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, (laughs) we come to you this morning through Jesus, your Son, whom in love you gave to be the propitiation for our sins. In Jesus, we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and we believed in him. And you sealed us with your Holy Spirit. Thank you. Thank you for the guarantee of our inheritance. We wait for it in great hope to the praise of your glory. You are righteous. You do right. Right are your rules. You rightly instruct us how to live. Your rules are good. They are for our good. You are ever faithful to us. Zeal to keep your word consumes us. When we look at our world, ignoring your word, wickedness circulating around us, it nearly does us in. But you have kept us. You promised to always keep us. And you keep us with your promises. We just love that about you. Lord, we are not like you. We are small. We're not always well-liked. But by your grace... We do not forget what you have told to us. You've shown us what is right. You've showed us 
your son Jesus, the way and the truth and the life. Truth is truth and will be true and right forever. Even though troubles come our way, we don't understand so much of what we see. Your commandments are our delight. The way that you have given for us to live is is right. Forgive us ever questioning you, believing that we could make our own way. Teach us, O Lord. Give us ears to hear what is right. Grant us the resolve to follow your commandments so that we will live fruitfully in this life and eternally in the next. Lord, we pray for our governor, Mike DeWine, for our lieutenant governor, John Husted, and for the director of health, Dr. Amy Acton. Lord, these are your servants whom you have appointed for our good to lead our state through this pandemic. Will you guide them? Will you grant to them wisdom as they begin to reopen our state and lead us out of this stay-at-home order? Would you give them grace to do it right and to do it with the right timing? For us, your humble servants, will you, will you give us patience? Patience is a fruit of your spirit. Bring it to bear in our life. Lord, we are eager, as everyone else is, to get back to normal. These have been long days, hard days, but we've trusted you in it up to this point. We trust you in it now. Forgive us if if we're too antsy. Just give us grace to trust you now. Humble us and quiet us. Fill us with hope when we don't agree with our leaders. Keep us from being ruled by fear, by frustration. As your people, may we be ruled by faith. We are your servants, unworthy servants. Keep what is needful for us in front of us and give us faithfulness to do that. May we honor everyone. May we love the church. May we fear the Lord. And may we honor the governor. Amen. Well, this morning we are in Colossians chapter 4, beginning at verse 2. We've been working our way through the book of Colossians, and now we're toward the end. So we're going to read verses 2 down to 6. Then I'm going to begin to unpack that passage one verse at a time. Colossians chapter 4, beginning at verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. 
Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its eternal truth on all of our hearts. The greatest threat to Christianity today is not COVID-19 or any virus for that matter. The greatest threat to Christianity today is not godless politicians or government overreach or a ban on church gatherings. The greatest danger to Christianity today isn't even persecution or famine or even the devil himself. Christians have been enduring through these things and more for centuries. No, the greatest danger to Christianity today is churches whose members keep their mouths closed. Closed doors do not threaten our church, but our members who close their mouths would completely undo us. The church in America could be lost in one generation if her members would simply stop praying and stop sharing the gospel. Now, of course, the inverse is also true. The greatest threat to the kingdom of darkness is a church that prays and evangelizes. The Apostle Paul is drawing his letter to the Colossians to a close. These are his final instructions to this little church. And these are vital instructions. Vital instructions to her present and future health. And we would do well this morning to lean in and to take to heart what the apostle is instructing the Colossian church under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He gives them two things. Talk to God about others and talk to others about God. Two things. Rather simple, completely essential. A healthy church, a healthy Christian, may have more than these two things, but they will never have less than these two things. The ministry of prayer and the ministry of the Word are two indispensable elements of a healthy church. Without prayer and without the Word, our little church is little more than a social club, than an interest group. Prayer and the ministry of the word are like two legs upon which our church will stand. If you're wondering which is more important, prayer or the word, well, the next time you're in an airplane, going through the air at 10,000 feet, Take a look to your right and to your left and ask yourself, which wing is more important 
than the other. Prayer and the ministry of the word are essential in the life of a Christian and essential in the life of a church. So this is the big idea this morning, a rather simple one. Talk to God about others and talk to others about God. Two points. We'll start with the first prayer. This is verse 2 to 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Here in these verses, we see four ingredients to effective prayer. Persistence, vigilance, thankfulness, and biblical priorities. Persistence, vigilance, thankfulness, and biblical priorities. Before we get into the specifics of this passage, perhaps we should say a thing or two about prayer in general. What is prayer? What does it mean to pray? I gave some time to thinking about this this week in order to come up with a definition of prayer. And definitions are somewhat difficult. You have to be precise with the language in, in order to not misconstrue meaning. And this is the best that I could come up with in defining prayer. Prayer is conscious communication to God about our dependence on Him. Prayer is Conscious communication to God about our dependence on Him. So prayer is more than just talking with God. Because there's a passage in Romans 8 in which it says that we don't always know what to pray. And the Spirit helps us in our prayers with words with, with groanings too deep for words. So there are times when we feel too weak to pray or we don't even know what to pray and the Spirit helps us with groanings more deep than words. Prayer is communication to God, not with God. Now that, that may be splitting hairs, but prayer is something we do. I could find nowhere in the Bible that says that God prays. I suppose this has something to do with the, the na- His nature and our nature. You see, He depends on us for nothing, and we depend on Him for everything. God reveals Himself to us, and we pray to Him. His communication to us is called revelation, and our communication to him is called petition. So prayer is conscious communication to God about our dependence on him. Well, why conscious communication? It's because prayer is mindful of God. It is mindfulness of God. It is intentional, deliberate looking to Him. Prayer is voluntary acknowledgement that there is something outside of ourselves 
that is greater than ourselves, that is necessary for us to exist, to endure, and to enjoy life. James 5 refers to the prayer of faith. Faith meaning active obedience, active dependence on God. So that's what I mean by prayer, conscious communication to God about our dependence on Him, which makes sense as to why Paul encourages the Colossian church to continue steadfastly in prayer. Literally, devote yourself to prayer. The first ingredient in effective prayer is persistence. Our lives ought to be pockmarked with conscious acknowledgments of our utter dependence on God. It should be persistent. Paul wrote in another place, pray without ceasing. Always be mindful of God. Always be knowing your dependence on Him. In Luke chapter 18, the Lord Jesus tells a parable that we should always pray and not lose heart. He spoke of a widow who needed justice. She brought her need for justice to a judge, an unjust judge. And this judge neither feared God nor respected man. And over and over, this judge refused this widow. And over and over, she kept bringing her need to him. Eventually, Her persistence wore him down. Now, the Lord is not likening that unjust judge to God the Father. No, he's making a contrast between that unjust judge and God the Father. He says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them. Speedily. Cornerstone, be steadfast in your prayers. Persist in them. Cry to your Father day and night and know He hears and will answer. The first ingredient to effective prayer is persistence. The second ingredient to effective prayer in this passage is vigilance. Vigilance. Paul says being watchful in it. It means to stay awake. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Paul is commending prayer that is mind awake, mind aware. It means stay awake to the nature of the times in which we live, the last days. Our prayers should reflect the urgency of our day. Be vigilant in prayer. Pray with proverbial eyes open, aware of our own inclinations to sin, our own need for God, aware of the needs of our society, aware of the needs of our church, aware of the needs of our families, aware of the needs of our own lives. Watch and pray. Be persistent. Be vigilant. And third, 
Be thankful. The third ingredient in this passage of effective prayer is thankfulness. Once again, thankfulness is an acknowledgement of God. It is prayer with conscious communication to God, communication to God about our dependence on Him. So it only makes sense that thanksgiving, giving appreciation to God, would be a part of it. So Paul wrote to the Philippian church, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Friend, whatever the occasion for prayer in your life, make it your general practice to thank God for it. Now, that might sound like craziness to some, but this is a command from God. And those who have done this, those who have thanked God for the reason they have to pray, they know the impact that it will have. Thank God for the conflict, for the hardship, for the suffering for the pain in your life. When you're sick, when you need healing, thank God for that. See it as fruit-forming, reward-giving reminders that you are frail and needy and dependent on God. When you're praying for a return to gainful employment, thank God for your unemployment, for your furlough. See it as fruit-forming, reward-giving reminders that you are dependent on God as your provider. When you're praying the Lord would end this quarantine, thank the Lord for this quarantine, for the economic and societal shutdown. And see it as fruit-forming, reward-giving opportunities to serve your family, to eat at home, to slow down your life, to spend more of your time reading and praying. When you're praying for Governor DeWine and Dr. Amy Acton, which, by the way, I hope that you're praying for them more than you're complaining about them, Thank God for government officials who he is using for our good. If you don't agree with how they're leading us, well, then you should see this as an especially important fruit-forming, humility-producing, reward-giving chance to show Jesus is big. Be persistent. Be vigilant. Be thankful in your prayers. One more ingredient we see of effective prayer in this passage. And perhaps it is the most important one of all. Pray with biblical priorities. Biblically informed prayer is effective prayer. Paul writes to the Colossian church, pray for us. Pray that a door, the Lord would open doors for us to preach the gospel and that we would preach it clearly Our prayers, if they are going to be effective, must reflect biblical priorities. Friend, God is not a vending machine. You don't see what you want. Put a couple of faith coins in the slot and push the button, out drops your honey bun. God answers our prayers according to His will, not ours. We don't control God in prayer. He's not a genie in the lamp. Have you read James 4, 3? 
James 4.3 tells me why God doesn't sometimes answer my prayers. James 4.3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. So a couple of days ago, I was stopped at an intersection and across the way, I noticed a 2020 Toyota Tacoma, matte green with a flat black trim. And I'd be lying if I didn't say that I prayed a prayer while sitting in the cab of my rusted out 2001 Dakota. Well, the conclusion of the story is I'm still driving that Dakota. (laughs) I have not received because I asked wrongly to suit my own passions. Psalm 37 verse 4 says the secret of of, of answered prayer, the secret ingredient to answered prayer is this. You ready for it? Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Make Jesus the greatest delight in your heart, and you will have everything you want. Do you follow that logic? If Jesus is everything you want, everything you love, then what are you going to ask God for? More of Jesus. And guess what God is most willing to give you? More of Jesus. And you will have the desires of your heart. It's a bit like when Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. It's a bit like that. If your appetite is to be like Jesus, well, then that's what you're going to pray for, and then you're always going to be full. Effective prayer is driven by biblical priorities. And here are the biblical priorities in this passage, verse 3 and 4. Pray for us that God may open a door for us so that we can declare the mystery of Christ, that I might make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Paul is asking the Colossian church to pray the Lord would open doors for the gospel and that he and his companions would speak the gospel clearly. That is the way to get every prayer answered, to pray with biblical priorities. I've told you before, one of the things that totally revolutionized my own prayer life was praying Scripture. There are so many prayers written out for us in the pages of the Bible. Here's just one more. You ought to be praying this over your church. Pray that the Lord would open doors for our church to proclaim the mysteries of Christ and that when we do, our proclamation would be clear. God will answer that prayer. Notice, When Paul mentions his imprisonment, it's almost in passing. Do you catch this? It's a bit strange. Like when he, wouldn't it make sense to ask the Colossians, why don't you guys pray that I would be released from prison in order that I might go and share the gospel clearly? Why he could have asked that, why didn't he ask that? It's almost like this throwaway phrase, like, I'm in jail, it's no big deal. But you have to understand the way Paul viewed imprisonment and setbacks. 
Paul understood that his being locked in a cage was no hindrance to the gospel. In fact, he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy that I might be chained like a criminal, but the word of God is never chained. He told the Philippians that his own imprisonment actually served to advance the gospel. Because he got to share the gospel with the prisoners and the imperial guard. In fact, he ends his letter to the Philippians sending greetings to them from Caesar's own household. (laughs) Did you catch this? So, So Paul preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ all over the place in Philippi to be specific. And the enemies of Paul, they chase him down. Eventually, they get a hold of him, and they throw him in jail. And then they ship him far away to Rome. And when he's there, he just preaches to the prisoners and to the guards in that jail. And the message of Jesus Christ makes its way from that jail to the very household of Caesar himself. And now members of the emperor's own house want to say hi back to the Christians in Philippi. The gospel cannot be changed. It had to be so frustrating to be the enemy of Paul. And just a few weeks ago, I'm over here frustrated because of a stay-at-home order. Silly fool. Cornerstone, a stay-at-home order is not a hindrance to the gospel. Open your mouth and pray. Pray the Lord would use this situation to open doors for us to proclaim the mystery of Christ. How might biblical priorities change the way we pray? Might you say something different like, Father, use this sickness, this loss, this difficulty, this quarantine to advance the gospel? It's not wrong to ask for deliverance, but never at the expense of endurance. Pray that our faithful God would use our enduring suffering to exalt His Son. Pray that we would have opportunities to show others that Jesus is bigger than our situation. That our hope is in more than just our recovery. Our hope is in the Lord. Pray the Lord would use your situation to open doors for evangelism, to share the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray the Lord would use your situation to soften the hearts of those outside the church and to speak to them about him. That's the first leg. But of course, there's another leg, another wing on the airplane And that is the ministry of the Word. So we talk to God about others, and we also talk to others about God. This is verses 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. 
Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, there's an assumption in this text that I should probably point out. It's not a popular one, but you'll notice it at, in verse 5. There are insiders and there are outsiders. There are those in Christ, and then there are those outside of Christ. Friend, if you're tuning in today, and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that you're an outsider. God has reserved His blessing of eternal life to those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, who have repented of their sins. And if you are outside of Christ then you have no hope in this life or the next. You are under the judgment of God for your sins. But here's the best news. Anyone can become an insider. It doesn't take anything at all. Actually, that's the last thing it takes. It takes nothing. No one on the inside deserves to be on the inside. They are on the inside simply because God was gracious. Because Jesus, by his death on the cross, took away the entrance fee to become an insider. And you, if you turn to Christ by faith today, you can be joined to Jesus Christ, joined to his people. Come to the inside and feast with us on the joy of the Lord. If you want to do that, if you want to repent of your sins and become a Christian, reach out to us online, email us, Reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. We would love to get a hold of you. We'd love to help you get started on this new life in Christ. Paul is reminding the Colossians, their personal lives count for more, much more than just themselves. Well, you've heard it several times from up here that your faith might be personal, but it is never private. How you live, how you love, how you act matters. And not just for your own sake. And not just for your eternal sake. It matters for the sake of others. Those who are inside Christ. Those who are outside of Christ. So Paul is telling the Colossians, walk in wisdom toward those outside. You are being watched, Cornerstone. How you act at work matters because non-believers, they see you. You know, when I grew up, we had these places, um, used to be able to go and you were able to buy food and uh, someone would bring it to you, you'd sit down, someone would bring it to you and they could order drinks and like if your drinks got low, they would refill it. We don't have those things anymore. I'm not even sure what they used to be called. But how you act in public matters. How you treat waiters and waitresses, it matters. I've said this for a long time. Christians ought to be the best tippers because of who we are. What you post on social media matters. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. We could also translate that post in wisdom toward outsiders. Some of us need a post-in-wisdom filter on our social media. If what we are about to say cannot easily or quickly be grounded in Scripture, 
then we're probably not posting in wisdom toward outsiders. You're going to evangelize something, Cornerstone. Scroll back through your own social media over the last several months and ask yourself, what am I evangelizing to? Making the best use of the time. Literally, this means to make the most of every opportunity. We're all limited with our time. And we have to ask ourselves, where is my time as a Christian most profitably spent in the advance of the cause of Christ? Personally, I am not opposed to social media. I use it myself. It certainly can be used to advance the gospel. Each day is a gift from God. And let's use each day to bring honor to God. And give ourselves to those things in our lives the Lord has put into our lives which most profitably advance the cause of Christ. And those areas of our lives that don't very profitably advance the cause of Christ, let's give little time to those things. Paul goes on in verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Again, this is connected to others so that we may know how to answer each one. Let your speech be filled with grace. Every sentence that passes through our lips that is typed with our fingers should be punctuated by grace. We are a people saved by grace, sanctified by grace whose very work is being done in grace, having received from the Lord grace upon grace. We are a grace-saturated people. You prick us, we bleed grace. Grace is in our DNA. It spills out of our words, out of our tones, out of our text messages. Dear one, I want you to hear the sweet comforting grace of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is your Savior, gentle, rest-giving. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. I'm not sure any of us really get that. In the moments when we are at our lowest when we are in our darkest moments, when we are at our worst, it's in those moments Jesus is most moved toward us. When we are at greatest need is when we see him best. Your weakness, your insecurity, your fears, your failures is what most attracts the Lord to you. 
in his abundant, overflowing grace. It's like a magnet drawn to steel. It just locks in when it meets your need. Your neediness will not turn Jesus away. It might be his favorite thing about you. It is the place he will show himself most glorious to you. Remember when you came to him in your sin? Burdened by the guilt of your sin? He didn't make demands of you. He didn't take you to the mat and ground and pound you. He stooped down. He lifted your chin. He took you in his arms. And he held you. And he took that burden away. And he became your rest. He became your peace. He showed you grace. And then... He showed you more grace. And then he showed you more grace. And every every day, new grace. Your non-Christian friends are feeling heavy laden right now. They are burdened by the guilt of their God-belittling sins. They're trying to work out their own salvation. And you can see it. You can see it in the way they act. You can see it in the signs in their yards. You can see it in the anger of their hearts. You can see it when they're fearing that this whole coronavirus is a conspiracy. Cornerstone, they're tired. They're scared. They're afraid of being duped. They're not like you. They're not, they're not joined to he who is truth. They're afraid the wool will get pulled over their eyes and they'll be duped. They're thirsty for something true, something satisfying. And you, you dear one, are standing next to the well of living water. You've been filled with the Spirit of God's grace. Out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. Grace is your native tongue. Remember what Isaiah foretold about the Lord Jesus. He prophesied that Jesus would have a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. Anyone else long to be like our master? Your neighbor is weary. And you can go fetch the words from the Lord Jesus and freely offer them with his grace to their lives. Every word seasoned with grace. That's what this next phrase means. Seasoned with salt. 
That's a peculiar phrase. I had to look this one up. In the first century, it meant you were saying something was interesting, that it was savory, it was winsome. Last weekend, Sarah and I picked up a um, a pork shoulder off the discount shelf at Kroger. We put a rub on it and we smoked it for like 12 hours or something. It just, just fell apart. The first few bites I took of the pork shoulder were underwhelming. I was kind of disappointed. And then I seasoned it with a little salt and there it was. All those flavors enhanced. May the Lord give us, in these days, savory speech. Words dripping with grace that would give hope to those looking for answers. May the Lord show mercy to us for every careless word that we, see, we speak or type in frustration, in anger. Forgive us for every futile attempt to make ourselves look big. And may the Lord grant that our words would make Jesus look big, and only Jesus. Because again, we are talking to others about God. If you carry the name of Christ, dear Christian, then what you do, what you say, what you type, what you tweet, reflects Him. Point others to Him. They're looking for answers now. And brothers and sisters, we have that answer. The Apostle Peter makes a similar point in 1 Peter chapter 3. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. There's a time and a place for disagreement and debate and correction perhaps even online, maybe. And whenever that time is, we answer the reason of the hope that we have in us with gentleness, with respect, and grace-saturated speech. You may win the argument, and you may lose the person. Charles Spurgeon put it like this. If you're drawn into controversy, use very hard arguments and very soft words. It's good advice for those arguing in print. It's better advice for those arguing online. Put persistence in your prayers. Put wisdom in your walk. And put seasoning in your speech. Talk to God about others and others about God. The ministry of prayer, the ministry of the word, these are the two wings that will keep our church flying on her way to glory. May the Lord be gracious to us that we would never lose sight of the importance of either. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you hear us. You always hear us. Through Jesus we come. Lord, we admit that we have not been persistent in prayer. 
We confess that we've given too little attention to prayer. We've belittled you in how we pray to you and how little we pray to you. Will you forgive us? Will you grant that we, your people, would make our church a house of prayer? That we would be a people who pray, who are steadfast in prayer for others, for the advance of the cause of Christ and His global glory. We confess that we have not represented you well to others. We so often get in our own way. Will you expose our fears and our insecurities and bring them to Jesus? Forgive us, Lord, for the ways in which we have not pointed to the hope that we know in Jesus. And all the ways that we've been caught up in all of the chatter that's been going on around this coronavirus. And all the ways that we've forgotten to talk about our hope in Jesus. Jesus feared nothing. He was so full of grace, he gave without concern of running out. Will you make us more like him? More gracious in our speech, more wise in our walk. Make us do good, and that good to be seen by those far from God, that they would turn to him and give glory to our Father in heaven. Do this, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. Your assurance of pardon this morning comes from Psalm chapter 37, verse 39 to 40. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and he delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Grace and peace.